0: Months after this experience, which I still cannot explain, I was on Dunwich Heath once more in a dream, walking the endlessly winding paths again, and again I could not find my way out of the maze which I was convinced had been created solely for me. Dead tired and ready to lie down anywhere, as dusk fell I gained a raised area where a little Chinese pavilion had been built, as in the middle of the Yu maze at Summer Layton. and when I looked down from this vantage point I saw the labyrinth. The light sandy ground, the sharply delineated contours of hedge taller than a man and almost pitch black now, a pattern simple in comparison with the tortuous trail I had behind me, but one which I knew in my dream, with absolute certainty, represented a cross section of my brain.
1: and welcome once again to The Spouter Inn. I'm Chris.
0: And I'm Suzanne.
1: And this time we are reading W.G. Sebald's The Rings of Saturn.
0: Which is a book I've been very excited about ever since I first ran across it and been trying to get you to read. So it'll be fun to talk about together.
1: Yeah, you've been telling me to read this for years. And um, now that I've read it, I have a question for you. What is this book? (sighs)
0: It's really, I don't know, it's like a bath or something. It's like, it's a book that I, when I read it, I just like sink right into it. I'm like, I don't know, it kind of washes over me. And as I was rereading it for today and imagining what it's like to be somebody other than me reading it, I'm like, I don't know if everybody is going to like this book, but people like me will really like this book. I
1: think that's, I think that's all very fair. Um, I definitely could see why people might like this book quite a lot and why they might bounce right off it. I enjoyed it. Uh and I I wished I wasn't reading it right now. If you see what I mean, I wish I had encountered this book when I was younger and wasn't quite so 2022ish in my brain habits because yeah. the book, it's like a bath. It's washing over you. It is usually described by
0: people as a novel? Yeah, I don't can't imagine why they would say that because there's no
1: plot. There's no plot. <laughs> There's absolutely no, no plot character development there's no there's nothing it's not even all that fictional i mean there no. are some things that are apparently not as accurate as it seems but it seems on the surface to be a person talking about their experiences wandering in a part of the world that they lived in meeting people that we know that they know and thinking about facts about history and literature and biography and so forth that are generally true.
0: Yeah. It's like a memoir or like an itinerary or like a pilgrimage text. I mean, the books I always compare it to in my own mind. And it's so funny when I was rereading this, I got to the end and I saw after the first time I'd read this book, a whole list of books or authors that I kind of put in the same category. So my list says things like Brown, Borges, Mandeville, Kafka, Chateaubriand, Melville, Montaigne. You know, you get the sense of being in a conversation with somebody who has all kinds of interesting things to say, and they go off on these imaginative sort of flights of fancy or tangents and then come back around again to the point. And so there's, there's this kind of sense of looping out in this long digression, and then you come back to where you started and you're paradoxically somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like it's you come back to where you were, but you're different. And so in that way, it's like Montaigne, or it's like, um, Brown, um, uh, writer of Religio Medici and Garden of Cyrus, or even a little bit like Moby Dick in some ways, the like very digressive encyclopedic passages. It's it's doing this, in Borges for sure, it's doing this thing where it takes you on a ride.
1: Yeah, but it doesn't have any of the Captain Ahab, Queequeg fun stuff to help you along.
0: No, no again, no, there is no plot. <laughs> but there are stories.
1: There are stories, but it doesn't even really tell you too explicitly what its framework is, so to speak, except the detritus of, of of things he's thought about for a while.
0: Yeah, but and also it's an itinerary, like it's a walk. He says this at the very beginning of the book when he the, the opening lines in August 1992, when the dog days were drawing to an end, I set off to walk the county of Suffolk in the hope of dispelling the emptiness that takes hold of me whenever I have completed a long stint of work. And so it's like it's again it's a very Moby Dickish opening in some ways. I think he talks about his frame of mind and that sort of sense of uh, paralyzing horror and destruction and stuff. But um, yeah, it's a walk, you know, um, and he travels from place to place. And that's why I said it's also a little bit like a pilgrimage. He goes to places he's wanted to go for a long time to think about the past in this really imaginative, dreamlike way.
1: And he walks through his thoughts, right? He walks from one one idea to the next.
0: Exactly. So it's like travel narrative almost. I mean, that's another way you could think about it. But not novel, for sure.
1: Yeah, no. Well, I mean, you know, I'm I'm perfectly willing to have a very capacious sense of what the novel is, but I don't know <laughs> if novel is the most helpful term for this, as opposed to essay or prose poem, even if even if potentially a lightly fictional essay.
0: And the prose is beautiful in places, like it's as you say when pro- I mean, you said prose poem. I mean, there's there's passages that are just absolutely lovely, and that's one of the things I like about it a lot too.
1: Well, what do we know about W.G. Sebald?
0: Uh, Not a whole lot. His name, Winfried Georg Sebald, born in 1944, so very near the end of World War II in Germany, and he died in 2001, only aged 57, too young. Uh, His most famous novel came out actually um, in the year of his death, called Austerlitz, but The Rings of Saturn, which is the one we're reading, came out a few years before that in 1995, and uh, as I said, I think it's pretty fabulous. Um, He was a writer, also an academic, and he spent an awful lot of his adult life in England um, from 1970 onward, uh, mostly at the University of East Anglia but his writing was in in German, but he supervised the translations into English closely. So he's one of these interesting writers who's clearly at home in multiple languages and kind of thinks a lot about this. One of the things that happens in The Rings of Saturn is he talks a good deal about the author Joseph Conrad. Um, again, uh, a writer, uh, a Polish background, first language was German, and um he describes him coming to write in English in a way that is clearly kind of echoing or consonant with Zebald's own experience. So he's someone who lives between languages, I guess you would say.
1: Yeah. And I imagine we'll talk more about Conrad in a bit. Um, Mm. Let me give a little sense of what reading this is like to those who haven't read it before. Um, This is basically going to be a summary of chapter four, but it's kind of an impossible to summarize book and even the chapters are Kind of impossible, so bear with me. So, chapter four begins with our, our narrator walking along the beach in, you know, East Anglia, uh, where he remembers that a naval battle had occurred between the English and the Dutch in 1672, and you know, it's it's hard now to imagine how much labor went into battles. In the past. Oh, and also, he thinks, paintings of naval battles are notoriously unreliable, because of course the artists are generally not at the scene. And anyway, this 1672 battle was small, but it could be argued that it had tremendous impact, marking the beginning of the Netherlands decline and England's rise as a naval power. Oh, and also one year earlier, our narrator was in The Hague, looking across the Channel <laughs> at England, and he had that day an encounter with somebody he thought might try to mug him, and so he was restless in his hotel. But the next Next day, he saw Rembrandt's painting of the anatomy lesson, which he's discussed a few chapters ago, uh, and then he works his way to Amsterdam, and then he flew to Norwich, the largest city in Norfolk, and uh, he looks out the window and thinks, "Oh." how small everything is. But that was like a year ago, and now he's looking for the sailor's reading room. And when he finds it, he settles in and he reads the logs of patrol ships from 1914, which eventually leads to a discussion of ethnic cleansing in Bosnia and an allusion to Kurt Waldheim's involvement in some of the uh, politics around the ethnic cleansing process that was happening, and then Waldheim's later position as Secretary General of the United Nations, which led to his voice being recorded and launched into space on Voyager 2. <laughs> now, if you look up a summary of Chapter Four of *The Rings of Saturn* online, you might read something completely different, and that's because there is so much detail packed into these, and and the the, the walk of one thought to another hits so many occasions that everybody's going to take away different landmarks.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: But I tried. I tried to. I tried to give you a shape of it.
0: But that's right. I mean, so it's in 10 parts. There's 10 sections, um, 10 sections, 10 chapters, however you want to look at it. And that that bath-like quality of the prose, you know, where it just goes on, um, uh, is something that's partly produced from the way in which the paragraphs will go on and the way sentences go on. Like, they're they're beautifully structured, but there's this kind of, I don't know, tidal rhythm to them. And um, as we were saying earlier, too, there's like nested stories within them at certain times. Like, sometimes there's stories about himself, like you were describing in, in part for um you know he describes you know being in the hague and you know being nervous and going he talks about himself sometimes but other in other um sections of the book he'll tell about other people other writers other figures in history in a really evocative way so like Fitzgerald, who's the translator of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, is one of the people he talks about, or Chateaubriand, whose memoir is particularly famous. He'll he'll tell his life story. He tells a life story of Joseph Conrad. He's got these nested, I don't know what to call them. They're not, they're sort of biographies, but they feel like story because they're so richly textured. So they're like little, what's the word, invagations, you know, where it's like you go into the story and then you come back out of the story. Into his first person narration, so it's like being with somebody who can tell you all these um these fabulous little gems. it's not quite that he
1: has the perfect story for every occasion, although he sort of does. It's that there's this like domino effect or something where one story will lead to another will lead to another will lead to another will lead to another and and they are stories in the sense that you feel like you're being told about Conrad's life for a reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he's not just telling it as something sort of in the abstract, like he's he's making a point or several points that he's drawing out, or or he's mirroring things that are happening in Conrad's life with some of the other ideas that are rattling in his head. And so it's being told in such a way to draw this out and to trace out echoes and so
0: forth. I can give a nice illustration of that, of that way that the 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 narration, the way you go in and out of the narration with regard to the story of Joseph Conrad. So he tells about this writer who's famous for a number of his works, but particularly his Heart of Darkness. And it's that book that's very much lying behind Zeybal's invocation of Conrad, because it's not just that he's interested in writers, he's interested in, I think, writers as mediators of history. And, and and in particular, colonial history and some of the darker chapters of twentieth-century history, in particular. And so, the episode happens in chapter five, and it's pages one hundred four to twenty-three. So it's a long section, and you can sort of see the way in which he sort of dives into it. And he goes in to the story by way of uh, an account of Conrad's mother. He says, in the late summer of eighteen sixty one Madame evelina Korzanyovska traveled from the small Ukrainian town of Zhutomir to Warsaw with her boy Josef Theodor Konrad, then not quite five to join her husband and then it goes into their lives, the parents' lives and then into the son's life, and so on and and there's a lot to say about it, but I just want to point out here the way you come back out of it so he's he's, he's gone into Conrad's life, talked about him, come to his arrival in Ostend in Belgium. And he evokes the terrible colonial history and exploitations of Belgium and the Belgian Congo. He says, all the passersby in the streets seem to him to bear that dark Congolese secret. And indeed, to this day, one sees in Belgium a distinctive ugliness dating from the time when the Congo colony was exploited without restraint and manifested in the macabre atmosphere of certain salons and the strikingly stunted growth of the population, such as one rarely comes across elsewhere. At all events, I well recall that on my first visit to Brussels in December 1964, I encountered more hunchbacks and lunatics than normally in a whole year. And he goes on telling this account of his own experience in that place, um, and ends um, ever since that first visit to Brussels, the very definition of Belgian ugliness in my eyes has been the lion monument and the so-called historical memorial site of the Battle of Waterloo. Why I went to Waterloo, I no longer know. But I remember walking from the bus stop past a bleak field. So he kind of comes out of the story into the self in this, here in this very brutal kind of way, um, marked by the dark history of the place. And each time he goes into one of these narratives, that the coming back out into the self is, can be very harmonious, but it can also be very, what's the word, harsh, like it is here.
1: Well, so that's true. But it goes deeper. Because in the middle of Conrad's story, he also talks about how Conrad, at one point in his life, ends up on a ship that's going between Lowestoft and Newcastle, which are two of the places he's visited on this walking tour. Mm -hmm. So he's thinking about how Conrad has been traveling along the same paths that he himself is at in the midst of this story. And he's also telling the story of Conrad. It's all a sort of not a digression, but it's all sort of a nesting. And, and what was the word you used? Invigation. It's a little parenthetical because. The larger story around this is that he had been watching a BBC documentary about a guy named Roger Casement, who got executed because of his political activism, which started out when he had gone to the Congo. He met Conrad there. He came back to Belgium, I guess, and then started trying to publicize the information about it and got into some political trouble with that because, of course, King Leopold didn't want any of that. He gets Sent back, and then he starts thinking about his own situation because he is from Ireland, and at this point, Ireland is under colonial rule. And he starts becoming active in that movement until finally he is executed. Uh, there's a whole thing about Casement was gay. They found his notebook. They leaked it to the press, etc. And this led to a huge thing. So there's like tragedies within tragedies, but also personal connections to. Zabel's narrator again and again on different levels throughout these stories, you know. He's watching the documentary at while he's at this place. He's thinking about Conrad. Conrad has been in this part of England, but also he's got that connection that you described with Conrad in Belgium and this whole reflection on his experiences of Belgium as mediated through these historical stories. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and it's interwoven in this incredibly rich way, as you're evoking, right, where it's Casement and Conrad and Sebald himself. So you get these odd moments where, for example, he describes um, uh, Conrad uh, in Lowestoft where he's, um, He says, in the evenings when the darkness settled upon the sea, he will have strolled along the esplanade, a 21-year-old foreigner alone amongst the English. I can see him, for instance, standing out on the pier where a brass band is playing the overture from Tannhäuser as a nighttime serenade. And as he walks homeward past those who remain to listen, with a gentle breeze coming off the water, he's intrigued by the ease with which he's absorbing a hitherto quite unfamiliar language, a language he will one day employ to write the novels that will win him worldwide acclaim. Right? So it's this weird, I mean, he's talking about Conrad, but it's also, this is somebody else, right? I'm about his own experience is kind of there as well. Exactly.
1: To be honest, this chapter, this chapter five, is I think my favorite chapter in the book. Mm. and. I, You know, if you're only going to read one chapter to give it a try, mm. it, it's fine. You're not missing too much from not having read the first four chapters. You can dip into it that way.
0: Yeah, no, it's a good one. And it's a good moment also to point out this one other really neat feature about Zabel's um, writing, and again, one that I really like, the images. So he he'll put in photographs of different sorts they'll be landscapes or buildings or people or all different things that are illustrating in some way or the other and there's at certain points they're done particularly poignantly, um, the uh, Temple of Jerusalem one, which we might talk about later is a really great example, I think. But here in this chapter, when he's given the account of Casement, we get, uh, we get a picture of Casement um, being led off by uh, police, and we get excerpts from what looks like his date book. And then finally, at the very end of the chapter, we get his signature, Roger Casement, 14 April
1: 1916.
0: Which is when he dies. Exactly, right? So there's a sense in which he almost he signs the memoir, kind of. Uh, um, and so that interwoven quality of these people's live stories, we, we, we begin with the first-person narrator, but we go out into these other lives, and then we come back over and over again.
1: Yeah. The The other thing about these photographs is that none of them have captions. Mm-hmm. None of them have credits. I mean, I think they're all photos that he took. But even these sort of scans of documents, nothing... There's no information given. There's no like list of special thanks to the various.
0: No, you people. have to figure it out.
1: It's all just there as part of the text, which is which is kind of fascinating.
0: Well, I, what do you make of it? I mean, I have some ideas. What do you make of it?
1: It's interesting. One of the things that I first thought while reading this was that while these photos and these reproductions of these photos are very gray, mm-hmm. they do not seem like they were especially designed for this kind of print job that was done for this book. And so there's something kind of for the most part sort of indistinct and let's say not especially pretty about the photos.
0: They're almost like newspapery if you remember like old newspaper photos kind of. They're they're rough.
1: Yeah, they're very amateurish often. Uh, Sometimes, you know, it's photos of like, there's there's a copy of a painting of uh, the young poet Swinburne uh, showing off his shock of red hair, which of course is just gray hair in this black and white reproduction. But that at least, you know, is professionally made by a painter and there's some nice contrast to it. A lot of these photos are just smeary and blotchy. And it also feels like that's kind of the aesthetic he's going for, that there's something a bit indistinct about them or that the Images are, are designed so that they're not overwhelming the text.
0: Yeah I almost feel like they're like reference photos. you know what I mean you know how yeah. you have a photo that's to kind of as almost a kind of a placeholder a trigger or something to tell you what goes there and I feel like that's very much in keeping with the the way in which I mean, he never talks about imagination as such but this this idea of imagination as this kind of wellspring of images I mean, He talks about dreams a lot and memory and the way in which memory is sharp or indistinct. And the photos, I think, are kind of in that space. They're, they're, they're cues to memories as opposed to sharp, clear representations of what is or was. One of
1: my favorite photographs in the book, and one of the few that really just stood out to me and popped, let's say, uh-huh. occurs later in the book. And it is a photograph of a model of the Temple of Jerusalem.
0: That was also one of my favorites.
1: So so at some point, Zabalt or the narrator, or whatever you want to call him, uh, is going to visit this person who spent his whole life, this guy named uh, Thomas Abrams, who's been working on a model of the Temple of Jerusalem for, uh, for a long time. And it's just, the more he has worked on it, the more he has tried to be accurate, and the more research has had to go into it, and the more detail has had to go into it. And it's become this sort of obsession, but... Maybe not in an unhealthy way. Just it's been a lot, and there seems to be a photo of it. I guess. I guess that's what it is. Uh, of course, there's no caption to explain it, but it is. I think the first proper two-page spread of a single photograph. I think
0: it's the only one. It's the only two-page spread. I think.
1: Yeah, we get like the diary. We get uh, two two pages of that, but that's for sort of. Smaller pages of the diary spill up. But yeah, I think this is then, yeah, later on we'll get a few other sort of book spreads.
0: Um, Yeah, but the effect is so heightened, right? Because you get this um, vanishing point in the gutter, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, you've got these rows of of columns Mm -hmm. uh, that, as you say, a vanishing point into the gutter over this two-page spread, and it's very symmetrical and very just so. And it just pulls you into the nothingness of the gutter of the book.
0: Yeah, and then there's this one little tiny figure. At the bottom left,
1: there's a few tiny figures. If, oh, you, is if there? you, I only yeah, see. Oh if you look yeah, closer you're... into the gutter, you can see a few others. But <laughs> there's right. one particularly noticeable—well, not noticeable, but it's it's small. You're but there's right. a, a larger figure, uh, is you know, an indistinct person just sort of staring off to the side at nothing.
0: So, what do you make of that? Like again, I'm full of thoughts. But what do you make of that?
1: I don't know what to make of it. I, I I just noticed that while I was reading it, it suddenly brought me there at a time when I was sort of going through the end of the book and. You know, I, I enjoyed the book a lot, but there was so little to hang on to that there was a lot of like, okay, I don't know why we're reading this story. I don't know where this is going. You know, and you know, then like you know. this, this temple person is, seems interesting. And then there's like that. And it's like, oh yeah, okay, mm-hmm. I'm back. Like this is in the next to last chapter in the book. So yeah.
0: Yeah. So like you're saying, the guy, this guy, Thomas Abrams, has been working on this model for 20 years, right? He's been doing it, It's like a, it's a life passion. And again, it really feeds into this whole pilgrimage idea that, you know, Zabel is going on this itinerant trip, right? You know, where he's going from place to place, visiting these sites, right? That are sometimes really secular sites, but they're like, and so we finally get to the Temple of Jerusalem. It's like really singing the pilgrimage song, right? But it's this model of it, right? And it's um, it's this product of his research, right? People keep asking him if he's been inspired by divine revelation, right? American evangelists keep asking whether it was inspired by divine revelation. And he says no, and they're all very disappointed, right? <laughs> he says <laughs> it's just research, right? but there's this lovely passage where where um Thomas Abrams talks about his work he says it's just gotten more and more and more complex, he says, right? In the final analysis, our entire work is based on nothing but ideas, ideas which change over the years and which time and again cause one to tear down what one had thought to be finished and begin again from scratch. He says, I would more than likely never have started building the temple if i had had any notion of how my work would get out of hand and of the demands it would make on me as it became ever more complex. And he goes, on, I have to make every one of the tiny coffers in the ceilings, every one of the hundreds of columns, every single one of the many thousands of diminutive stone blocks by hand, right? He says, I sometimes wonder if I will ever finish the temple and whether all I have done so far has not been a wretched waste of time. And that's when the two-page spread happens. (laughs) And then he picks up again. But on other days when the evening light streams in and I allow myself to be taken in by the overall view, then I see for a moment the temple. With its antechambers and living quarters, the Roman garrison, the bathhouses, the market stalls, the sacrificial altars, covered walkways, the booths of the moneylenders, the great gateways and staircases, the forecourts and outer provinces and the mountains in the background, as if everything were already completed and as if I were gazing into eternity. And that's the end of Thomas Abram's speech, right? We're in the middle of a paragraph, but that's the end of his speech. And and it's so powerful, right? Because this is a vision of what could be. Like whenever you're making something, you know, if you're writing something, you're like a, know, a poem or a book or a story or whatever, or whatever, right? or you're making a piece of art. Right? I, mean, I don't know how common this experience is, but I think some people have it like you imagine what it can be. And it never is that thing. <laughs> right. And I I feel like that's the that's what's happening there, right? That's it's an account of the making of the temple, but it's also like creation, right? Trying to make something. You 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 can glimpse it, right? But you can't make it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I I find that really trippy. And the picture works incredibly well, I think, to punctuate that whole ecstatic moment.
1: Yeah. I just had a look uh, cuz I also uh got a copy of the ebook of it. Um and that picture is broken up into two different images, and they're just next it doesn't work as well. Uh, it's very disappointing books <sighs> sometimes the, <laughs> the real book is is the, is the way to go. <laughs> the other thing about that passage you just read is that it ends with a mighty list.
0: You know how I feel about those,
1: yeah. Yeah, I do. And there were lots and lots of lists in this book that is all about the omnium gatherum. It's it's, it's, just everything. Everything that he can think of that fits in with the things he's talking about will find a home in this book, it feels like. It's a bit more constructive than that, I suppose. But it does often feel like anything can get into this book. And so there are a lot of lists in the book.
0: Yeah. You know, when we plan an episode, we always like sort of make a few notes for ourselves, you know, things we want to make sure to touch on and, you know, themes, topics, you know, here, one of the topics in our notes that I wrote is more lists (laughs) because (laughs) I really, so I will restrain myself and not talk about too many of them. Um, But just to kind of maybe uh, grab one or two that are just really powerful. I mean, to say what they're for, I mean, he's not just doing it because you know, out of a, as a default, like this is something very purposeful. Part of it is that vividly imagistic quality that I'm so struck by that I really fall in love with. And in part, when he does that, he's very much, I don't know if it's echoing, but kind of responding to, again, what this sort of early modern author um Brown does in his really, and some of his other writing, which we might come to at some point in our own experience. And um so when Sebald is talking about Brown, he says, um, One of the Brown's works called Urn Burial is a meditation on um, burial urns that had been unearthed in England and sort of just talking about all the stuff that comes to his mind when he thinks about those, right? And so Zabal, talking about Brown's writing, he says, his catalog includes a variety of curiosities the circumcision knives of Joshua, the ring which belonged to the mistress of Propertius, an ape of agate, a grasshopper, 300 golden bees, a blue opal, silver belt buckles and clasps, combs, iron pins, brass plates, and brazen nippers to pull away hair, and a brass Jew's harp that last sounded on the crossing over the black water. The most marvelous object, however, from a Roman urn preserved by Cardinal Farnese is a drinking glass so bright it might have been newly blown. So List, yes. But it's also a list that's doing some really heavy duty work. These are all objects that persist over time, right? They don't degrade, right? They're made of stone or metal or whatever, right? They've traveled through time in some sense, right? And the drinking glass is really amazing because that doesn't usually survive that, that voyage through time. So, so he's, he's, in, he's, so that's one of the things the lists are doing. They're, they're giving you a way to talk about time and also to talk about images, right? Which can be overwhelming. At certain times, one of my other absolute other favorite lists in this book comes at the end of part seven, where one of the people he's talking to is recounting a dream. It's a particularly beautiful passage, and I don't know, I don't know if other people would love it as much as I do, but I think it's absolutely stunning. I
1: believe that the passage you're you're thinking of is uh, right after a line that I take a special note of, hmm. uh, where so he he's talking with an author and translator who is also. A German person who moved to this part of England, uh, who's about 20 years older than uh, Zabald was, named Michael Hamburger. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of interesting echoes amongst their lives that they go over. But at some point, he says something to the effect of, uh, The ghosts of repetition that haunt me. Mm. Which... It feels a bit obvious, perhaps, but that kind of idea of the repetition of this thing that I'm seeing now is reminding me of this other thing that I'm seeing then, and then that ties to that other thing, which reminds me of this other thing, and like this kind of thematic repetition that that can circle around in these really intricate patterns throughout your life in the way that sort of haunts you that if you know enough about the world around you, it will keep inscribing itself onto you and that this book is a is a replication of that process and maybe not an entirely happy
0: one yeah no i think that's exactly right um it's i mean at the level of the individual person it's about the way in which your memories are always taking you back in this recursive kind of you know return backward that lands back in the present again after it sort of comes around full circle and yet you are always moving forward in time right so that's that weird like I don't know how to put it, you're swimming against the current when you go back in the memory and then you come back into the present moment, right? And when that happens at the collective level, then it's history. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, he's sometimes talking about very personal experience, personal memory. But in other moments, he's talking about um, kind of collective memory, right? So he'll talk about, like we were saying earlier, the Belgian Congo and the legacy of colonialism. Or he'll talk about World War I and Gavrilo Princip or World War II and, you know, the German as in this account of um, the translator, Michael Hamburger. Um, so, so there's that. And then also the dream states are these projections into the future, right? So you're always looping around forward or back, even as you move forward. Chronologically in time, and that's I think where the idea of the rings come from, right you're always coming back around again,
1: well mm yes uh we should we should think again about like what are the rings of Saturn
0: mm. yeah would I, I one of the it, it's sometimes understood I think in terms of just this this idea of recursion this coming around in circles, right but i one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, especially this time around reading the book, is how can I put it how we produce. Meaning, uh, okay, where where we think we're finding meaning, but we're actually creating it. So, how many rings are there around Saturn? Right, you might wonder. <laughs> so, um, because it's a kind of it's a trick question, right? Because there's a tr- there's an infinitely large number, right? There's all this stuff. There's all this crap organ- <laughs> or, or yeah, orbiting well, around. Yeah, well, since there
1: are no rings around it, yeah, right?
0: or no rings, or an infinitely large number, but to your eye, you produce seven. Right, um that generally speaking, right, it depends on how what level of magnification you're looking at, but generally seven is but but that idea that you produce it like you it's not that that order or that number or that meaningfulness actually exists, it's that you create it um through the act of perceiving it, and it's a little bit like constellations, right, I mean, it's not that the constellations are in these forms, right, it's that we make these forms, we make sense of them, we look at this stuff right all these individual pieces of stuff in the world and we make meaning out of them yeah this there's a moment when saybald really evokes this really powerfully it's at the end of part 9 when he's describing this uncanny storm that's happened that has brought down a whole number of trees in the place where he is. And it's it's weird because the trees are so deeply rooted that, and so densely planted that when they fall over there's no crash, there's no noise. They just very silently and slowly tumble over. And he sees this sight of um, I guess like erasure of a forest almost. And uh, it says this, the ancient trees on either side of the path leading along the edge of the park were all lying on the ground as if in a swoon beneath the huge oaks, ash, and plane trees, beeches, and limes, lay the torn and mangled shrubs that had grown in their shade, tuyas and yews, hazel and laurel bushes, holly and rhododendrons. With pulsing radiance, the sun rose over the horizon. And a few lines later, he says, I recall that during the night, doubting what I had seen with my own eyes, I walked once more through the park. Everything was in deep darkness, but the stars had come out in a display so resplendent as I had seen only over the Alps when I was a child. Or over the desert in my dreams, from the extreme north right down to the south, where the view had before been blocked by trees, the sparkling constellations were spread out: the Plough, the Trail of Draco, the Triangle of Taurus, the Pleiades, Pegasus, the Swan, and the Dolphin. Unchanged, and it seemed to me more magnificent than ever before. They revolved above me. There's a lot going on here. I mean, <laughs> lists first of all, but yeah. also like he sees this all in the daytime, right? And it's it can't take it in, and then he looks at it again at nighttime. And it's, it's in this darkness and the stars are there and he can match them up with what he saw as a child. So in the past or what he's dreamed, right? In this sort of projection into the future and all the way to the North, all the way to the South, there's the constellations all spread out. And the list of the constellations maps onto the list of the trees, right? It's almost like the stars have replaced these trees, which have been wiped out, but they're also, how can I put it? He invents them almost in a way, like they're, um, they revolved above me, right? Like he, that's how he orients himself in the universe. So it's this weird, I don't know how to put this. This is a book about the overwhelming abundance of stuff, of images, of historical events, of just stuff. And what are you going to do with that? You make it into a shape because that's the only way you can function. And we do that as individuals, right? We make coherence. And as a society, we do that and we call that history i i i I find that really like a really neat thought
1: yeah there are there are two other things i wanna point to off of that. one is that just a few pages before that description of the hurricane, there is a photo of zebald himself leaning up against a tree <laughs> uh which he talks about you know he's up against one of the lebanese uh cedars uh which unless I'm completely misreading it is in that area where the hurricane would you know, eventually uh, a decade later hit,
0: Hmm. uh,
1: ripping up the trees. So this is the only photo I believe of him in the book. I think you're right. And it's at that site, which is, you know, before the disaster strikes.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And the other thing that I want to point to is the epigraphs of the book. Uh, There are two of them. Uh, One of them uh, is just from an encyclopedia and it says the rings of Saturn consist of ice crystals and probably meteorite particles describing circular orbits around the planet's equator in all likelihood these are fragments of a former moon that was too close to the planet and was destroyed by its tidal effect. so you've got uh, as you say the, the rings are made up of debris of, of small items that aren't you know they are rings per se they're just tracing these orbits uh, but they are evidence of destruction that we now look up at the night sky and I think most people would typically think oh, the beautiful rings out around Saturn, right? You don't look at them and immediately think, oh, the sign of a terrible destruction where a massive meteorite got too close to a planet and then was destroyed and has now spread out across the entirety of it. This kind of hidden violence in everyday things. And uh, the quote before that is from Joseph Conrad in a letter that he wrote, which is in French, but in English it would go something like, Above all, we must forgive those unfortunate souls who have chosen to make pilgrimages on foot, who walk along the shore and watch without understanding the horror of the struggle and the joy of victory or the deep despair of the vanquished.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So we have this with you know his descriptions of him going out to the shore and thinking about the naval battles that have been there and so forth. Just the world is surrounded by evidence of struggle and evidence of violence and evidence of terrible things that have happened and that makes up the fabric and the texture like the the debris makes up the rings of saturn but again, what can you do with it? Well, you can you can make rings, and hopefully they're pretty.
0: Yeah. Well, it, I mean, the, I agree with you completely. It, and it happens: this destruction and this making of something out of that chaos happens at the celestial level—that's the the rings of Saturn. It happens at the level of warfare, as you were saying. That that makes the kind of historical narrative, right? And it happens also at the level of individual experience, right? And that's where Conrad's letter to Marguerite Poradoska is coming from, right? That it, it's 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 about allowing yourself you know, to be blown apart kind of by passionate experience, right? Yeah. And, and then you have to put yourself together again. And and, and I, I agree with you, like pulling those out really illuminates so much about what's happening in the book. These moments of separation and coming back together over a long time, there are a couple of them in the book and they really are, I think, you know, reinforcing that sense of, harmonious loss. I don't know what to call it. These moments of like um, recognizing that the past is the past and you can never have it again. There are a couple of these. One of them happens in his account of his own experience with the Ashbury family, um, uh, which um, he, he sort of ends up staying at, at, at sort of at these people's house because they rent out part of their house, um, this, this woman and her children. And he develops a relationship with one of the children at, well, grown, you know, grown young women. And, um, He he says this on page 220. He says, the next morning when I came to say goodbye, I had to look for Catherine for a long while. At last I found her in the kitchen garden, which was overgrown with deadly nightshade, valerian, angelica, and shot rhubarb. In the red summer frock she was wearing on the day of my arrival, she was leaning against the trunk of the mulberry tree that had once marked the center of the neatly laid out urban vegetable beds within the high brick wall. I've come to say goodbye, I said, stepping into the bower formed by the spreading branches. So... This is a moment of parting, but also she's wearing the same dress she wore when he first encountered her, and it's like a, it gets one of those weird intertextual moments it's like Odysseus and the the tree um you know um in the Odyssey so there's this sense of like coming back around and also parting um and this happens in in other moments as well, for example, when he's doing the section on the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, where um there's this encounter with a woman he had known twenty seven years ago, and they come together she says, my lord, do you remember me? And I, he wrote, recognized her. After 27 years, I was sitting at her side again. The tears swelled up in my eyes and I saw her through the veil of those tears exactly as she had been during that summer, which had long sunk into the shades of memory. Et vous, madame, me reconnaissez-vous? I asked her. Right? So they're asking one another, do you remember me? Do you remember me? Um, and they're far, far away from that First moment, right? They've come around full circle, but they're far away from where they started. I mean, I'm not putting it very well, right? But there's this it's about how time takes you forward in a linear way, but it also takes you right back to where you were before um, through memory and then sometimes through these encounters.
1: Yeah, there's absolutely a sense that time doesn't really exist in a sense, or it's very fuzzy.
0: You make it. Right? Yeah. You make it. You make sense of it. Remember, Augustine was talking about this, right? You have to. It's something. It's a, an order you create because otherwise you couldn't function.
1: Exactly. But he's not letting it be ordered chronologically, so to speak. He's letting it be ordered in other ways. So time keeps circling around itself, which is, you know, when I gave that summary of chapter four. The time is all over the place. Like he's looking, he's on the beach. He's looking at the battle. The battle happened several hundred years ago. He's now thinking about a year ago when he was on the other side of of, of the channel and what he was thinking about, and then like the things that happened in the days up to it, and then coming back to now, and then going back to nineteen fourteen. This is all happening, so to speak, at once or over the course of a day, but it's also taking place in a bunch of different times, and that's just the texture of time as he's understanding it as 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 he tries to understand the world in ways that are more profound than strict chronology
0: allows and also exp- exposing the way you make it the way you construct it i think he's also kind of unpacking that so you can see the scaffolding kind of that is usually invisible i want to
1: read just like the last paragraph of the novel
0: quote unquote novel
1: quote unquote novel um Today as I bring these notes to a conclusion it is the 13th of April 1995 it is Monday Thursday I'll just skip ahead a little bit. On this very day, 397 years ago, Henry IV promulgated the Edict of Nantes. Handel's Messiah was first performed 253 years ago in Dublin. Warren Hastings was appointed Governor General of Bengal 223 years ago. The Anti-Semitic League was founded in Prussia 113 years ago. And 74 years ago, the Amritsar Massacre occurred when General Dyer ordered his troops to fire on a rebellious crowd of 15,000 that had gathered on Bagh Square to set an example. And then he describes that a little bit. And then uh, 50 years ago to the day, British newspapers reported that the city of Sel had been taken and that German forces were in headlong retreat from the Red Army, which was advancing up the Danube Valley. And finally, Monday, Thursday, the 13th of April, 1995, i.e. today, was also the day on which Clara's father, shortly after being taken to hospital in Coburg, departed this life. Now, who is Clara? Clara is somebody that he mentioned once in the previous chapter. In the middle of other things, just mentions that he's meeting up with her for a drink and does not describe the drink or does not say anything about Clara. That's all we know about Clara, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Uh, it, it was such a confusing moment that I just, uh, uh, I, 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 I've got the ebook. I'm going to search for Clara. Did I miss a Clara? Is there actually a plot going through this? Should I know? Should that hit me particularly hard? Well, maybe. Like, there's something about the fact that we don't really know who Clara is in his life, but it's somebody that he knows and will get a drink with, and then her father passed away. And, I mean, that is enough to be sat on its own. It maybe doesn't seem to be in the same league as all the other things he's just listed, but, you know, maybe on a certain level it is. I don't know. It's fascinating that it, that it ends with that list, and it ends with this very narrow, specific thing that it's about. I mean, it does go on after that, but uh, for a little bit more but uh, he starts thinking about his history which is but a long account of calamities and it occurs to me that the at one time the only acceptable expression of profound grief for ladies of the upper class was to wear heavy robes of black silk taffeta or black crepe de chine and he's been talking quite a lot about silk production on this Mm -hmm, book because mm -hmm, there are a mm -hmm. million different threads he's following on this book and silk production in China and then in France is a big one.
0: (laughs) Well, threads, yeah, no, totally. So there's a lot to say. So you write that like a lot of the moments that he's mentioning, you know, the the 13th of April moments, you know, some of them are almost cosmological when he says, you know, it's Maundy Thursday, the feast day on which Christ's washing of the disciples' feet is remembered and also the feast day of these various saints and then major historical events, the Edict of Nantes, you know, stuff like that. There's the macrocosm of history, but there's also the microcosm of the individual life. And that's Clara's father's death, which for Clara, right, is a terrible thing, is a big thing. Of course, right? of course. So, no, so it's kind of bringing out the way in which, like, there's there's the macrocosm, right, the big world, and then the microcosm, the little world of the individual person. But when you're in the microcosm, how can I put it, that little loss is is overwhelming, right? So it's it's this dizzying movement between... I don't know what to call it. It's like synecdoche, right? It's like the, the very small thing is also the enormously big thing, um, at the same time. And, um, and also you were mentioning like silk, like, um, silk and silk manufacturer and like actual pieces of silk show up over and over and over again through this work. So one thing that structures it is the, you know, the 10 sections, the 10 chapters and this digressive circular way of moving. But the other thing I think that kind of knits it together is like, these little pieces of silk, right? These this idea of like silkworms, mulberry trees, the, the business of making silk, um, strips of silk, like it shows over and over again. What do you make of it?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> is it, I don't know if I make anything in particular of it. It's, it is definitely, a, uh, again, a thread uh-huh, that's there. And I am not an expert on silk. So I have to admit that, that that stuff, I wasn't catching on to it as much as I probably should have.
0: Well, like, I think, so, so two things. One is part of is the experience of reading this, right? So when I was reading it the first time, I was noticing these little references to Silk, and I'm like, wow, what's going on there? I was enchanted by it. And then you get to the end, the last section, the last chapter, and there's like a whole lot about it. And it was like... I don't know. It's like you know when you listen to I don't know a symphony or something like that, and there's a theme and it shows up and shows up and then it comes back again at the end and it's all big and blown out and fully expanded. Right. That that's what it's like. It's like listening to music. I mean, I mean that's how it strikes me. That's I, 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 how I was really turned on by that. The other thing he's doing with the silk stuff is, you talked before about um, uh, Thomas Brown being someone whose work he's kind of very intertextual with here. And Brown uses the metaphor of the silkworm um, as part of a kind of elaborate metaphor about the nature of the soul and even the possibility of the transmigration of the soul. You know, so the same way, You know, the worm makes a chrysalis, and then, you know, there's the cocoon, and then it, you know, becomes like a a moth or a butterfly. So he uses that as a metaphor. So Sable picks that up, but instead of going to, you know, elaborate the um, metamorphosis experience, right, and using that as a metaphor or an allegory, instead he's like, it's all about the silk, right? It's all about the thing that is produced, which is a thread, which can be woven, which can be elaborated, and which therefore becomes an incredibly interesting way of talking about the writer. Right, which he's been talking about all the time through this book, right, with Conrad and all the others. So there's a nice little passage where he brings that out explicitly, or as explicitly as he's ever gonna get. And um it's in the it's in the last section, it's on page two eighty three where he says this. He's talking about silk, silk weaving, silk weaving factories, what the weavers experience and how much stress they have, you know. So that weavers in particular, together with scholars and writers with whom they had much in common, tended to suffer from melancholy and all the evils associated with it, is understandable given the nature of their work, which forced them to sit bent over day after day, straining to keep their eye on the complex patterns they created. It is difficult to imagine the depths of despair into which those can be driven who, even after the end of the working day, are engrossed in their intricate designs and who are pursued into their dreams by the feeling that they have got hold of the wrong thread. Right? So He's talking about weavers, but he's also talking about you know, people who create things, right? And so those metaphors of the design, the thread, it's all one thing for him.
1: I, I think you're absolutely right about the notion of sort of thematic development, and especially with the silk stuff, I think that that does sort of get bigger and bigger over the course of of the quote-unquote novel which you know maybe that is what it's doing instead of character development or plot development it's just thematic development but
0: because it's very literary i mean it's super literary but it's like Montaigne's essays, or like Mandeville's Travels, or um, some of Borges's more weird stuff—none of which are novels. <laughs> no, and that's why, like, I would not call it a novel. But it, so it's was more like memoir, I think, than anything else. And the the photos strengthen that. You know, one of the books that reminds me of too is um, um, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue uh, by Samuel Delany, which totally different book, but also is this—it's about a world, but it's also about individual experience, and it also uses images as a way of punctuating. Um, the account. I mean, I know it's a very different kind of book, but but in that way, I mean, they those books push very similar buttons for me.
1: So we are in the middle of a cluster on time. and I think this definitely has a lot of interesting things to say about time and contrasts really uh, nicely with the confessions. What were some of the other books that we had thought about adding to this cluster?
0: Well, one we talked about, but I don't think ever considered seriously, though it's a shame is um Proust's Remembrance of Things Past or In Search of Lost Time. I mean someday. someday. I know. It's like but it's I've never read the whole thing, but it's incredibly beautiful. I've read about two hundred, three
1: hundred pages of it, which is not a lot considering it's like two thousand
0: something <laughs> pages. Someday total. though we should pick out a section and do yeah. it. You yeah. know, and do it in a very like focused kind of way because it is beautiful.
1: Yeah. If, yeah. Well, maybe, well, maybe some year we'll devote to,
0: someday, to
1: Um But obviously, I also feel like Proust has uh, been talked about a lot in terms of his thoughts on time, or at least in terms of how it shows up in the first 50 pages of the novel. Yeah. Uh, which exactly. are terrific, but you know, which is the thing that most people read. That's the bit I've read in French, even. So, la la. No. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Proust was definitely on the list. Another one that, we were considering was in a very different manner, Octavia Butler's novel Kindred,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is, I believe, her first published novel. But it is a, a story with a kind of time travel experience where the narrator uh, sort of bounces back between Los Angeles in the 70s and life on a pre-Civil War Maryland plantation and it uses this in some very interesting ways. Uh, it's one of, I think, the most popular Octavia Butler books. It is maybe not my favorite, but I need to reread it at some point. And it's been a little while, so I should. I wanted to give it a chance. But uh, we just didn't quite have – I mean, we only get three slots.
0: I know. So another we, we'll, time. We'll another figure time. out how
1: to bring in Octavia Butler one of these days.
0: Yeah. And another um, thing that we thought about doing – and, you know, we've never done a book of the Bible, have we? I don't think we ever have. Not no. yet. No, um, Genesis, right, which is super fun to do as literature because you can take it apart in all these different kinds of ways. And in particular, because the creation, you know, the account of creation in the opening chapters is also an account of the creation of time, like starting up time. So that's also a kind of fun thing to do.
1: And it would have tied in perfectly with... uh the confessions which talks so much about the first chapter of, of genesis um another book that we were thinking about was another book that i've been meaning to reread i i read this many years ago now and it would be fun to go back to it uh, the histories of herodotus which mm, is
0: I, i've never read that i'm, oh, ashamed, I'm ashamed to say we, we should definitely do it at some it's point it's kind of great i kind of love it um
1: It is one of the first history books. Uh Uh, It's a little bit contentious about that because some of its historical methods are not necessarily what we would uh, hope for. Mm -hmm. Uh, Perhaps, I mean, he's sort of known as the father of history and the father of lies, I think, is the the old saying. But it's it's not nearly as bad as people sometimes make it out to be. And it is, in many ways, delightful as literature as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It is, you know. From 430 BCE in, in Greece, looking at the rise of the Persian Empire and some of the conflicts between Persia and the Greek city-states. And there's some really neat stuff, especially uh, in some of the early chapters uh, about the world, sort of uh, – description of of various populations.
0: That sounds awesome. And um, maybe also we could think about doing that in connection with a cluster on history writing or something like that, if we do that again. We've
1: already done a cluster on history (laughs)
0: writing. (laughs) Son of history writing. History writing strikes back. (laughs) And one other book that we thought about doing, which we've talked about doing in a couple of different connections, um, would be um, Walter Benjamin's Arcades Projects, or Passagenwerk, um, which would work, I think, in a cluster on time. But it's also about space and organization and you know categorization and like I feel like it could go in a lot of different ways i really I really love that unfinished project. it's so neat um do you are you fond of it as well? I have never
1: read it. I have just read people. heard people talking about it so much.
0: It's such a cool, it's unfinished, but it's such a cool idea. I would love to do that together with, I don't know, something encyclopedic like Bartholomew's Anglicus or something like that. I think it would be really neat.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I'd love to have an excuse to to finally read it. Lots and lots of books that we could have done about time so many, barely scratching the surface. <laughs> I guess I guess The Time Traveler could also, by H.G. Wells could also have been on there, um, and plenty of others. And In fact, why don't you tell us what you think should have been on that list as well? Write in to us at spouter at megaphonic.fm, or write to us on Twitter, or however else you would get in touch with us, and uh, give us your ideas of what else you would want to see included on a cluster on time. And next episode, we will read some of them
0: out. And what else will we be reading for next time?
1: Well, you know what other book takes place on April 13th, (laughs) depending on (laughs) if you adjust for calendars or not? (laughs) It's uh, The Paradiso by Dante.
0: It's going to be our Dante trifecta. We've already done The Inferno and The Purgatorio, and now we're on to The Paradiso.
1: Yay, we finished it. We'll get to finish it.
0: <laughs> it'll be fun. Do you like the Paradiso? Mm,
1: it's it's super a more weird. fun book to talk about than it is to read.
0: It's well, it's again vivid and imagistic. So I feel like, you know, remember we've talked many times about how we'll have a theme and then we discover that like the the, the things we've read also have this kind of other theme going at the same time. And um it'll be neat to talk about that, you know, when we're um talking about the Paradiso to see if that's happened as well.
1: I remember The vividness of it being, as you got closer and closer to the end of the book, as you got closer and closer to God, so to speak, that the imagery tried its hardest to get whiter and whiter. Mm. And it was just trying to blind you with the whiteness of it all Mm. uh, as it went in. And then I found that very um, exhausting.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, no, there'll be a lot to say about that, right? Well, it's meant to be harder and harder to wrap your head around, right? It's meant to be more and more remote from human experience, right?
1: That's true. And it gets more and more, I guess, abstract as it goes on. But we'll talk about this next time, I suppose. Yeah. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at spouter at megaphonic.fm or we're on Twitter at The Spouter. We'd always love to hear from you. Show notes with links for anything we've mentioned in this episode are at megaphonic.fm slash spouter slash 54. And The Spouter Inn is one of the fancy little podcasts over at Megaphonic FM. So until next time.
0: Until next time, see you again at The Spouter Inn.